Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is Red Box. I'm Matt Chorley with the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Don't forget, I'm interviewing David Cameron later this week. So if you've got any questions you want to uh, ask him, uh, get in touch, drop me an email, matt.shawley at times.radio. That's the same email address, by the way, if you want to get in touch uh, to come on the quiz. Can you get to number 10? Uh, we had a guy on today who was completely hopeless and couldn't even get the first question right. So if you think you can do better than that, then get in touch, matt.shawley at times.radio. Now then, a properly fascinating episode today. I spoke to Deborah Mattinson. Gordon Brown's former pollster, now just an expert in what's going on in those red wall seats that the Tories took from Labour and what might be happening uh, there this time round. So take a listen. Imagine this, the man who hankered to be Prime Minister, angry that his old mate got there first, finally getting into number 10 and enjoying a surge in the polls for handling a crisis well, only to find the honeymoon was short-lived with serious questions about what exactly he wanted to do with the top job after all. Perhaps... Boris Johnson has got more in common with Gordon Brown than he'd like to admit. Well, few people know the highs and lows of being inside a political operation better than my guest today. Deborah Mattinson began working as a pollster for the Labour Party in the 1980s when things were so bad she'd stopped, she stopped writing down what voters said. Uh, she became Gordon Brown's pollster, guiding him through his golden years at the Treasury before his slightly less golden move into Downing Street, his short-lived honeymoon and, of course, Labour's defeat. Since then, she's been outside the Westminster machine, running the polling firm Britain Thinks, chronicling in particular Labour's decline amongst its traditional voter base, which she does brilliantly in her new book, Beyond the Red Wall, Why Labour Lost, How the Conservatives Won and What Will Happen Next, uh, which is out today. And Deborah joins me in the studio. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Well, so when I was uh, discussing with my wife that you were coming on today, the first thing she said was, who does polls? I've never done one. 
uh, or focus group. So uh, and this comes up all the time. And every we talk about polls and people will text in and say, well, I've never done one. So explain, first of all, your role as a pollster, how you find people to respond to polls. So what I mean, there are different ways that you can do a poll. You can do a poll online. Um, in the olden days, pre-COVID, you could do a, a, a poll face to face. You could do one over the telephone. Uh, and how we find people depends on the method. Obviously, if it's face to face, then it is literally going out in the street and stopping or knocking on people's doors. And it's the same for focus groups. Uh, obviously, at the moment, we're doing our focus groups online as well. But typically what we do, um, we at Britain Thinks, like most other agencies like ours, have a network of people up and down the country, and we will decide who we want to listen to, and they will go out and find those people for us using a mix of methods. So they'll, they'll knock on doors, they'll, they'll wait outside a, a school playground, they'll, they'll go to a shopping mall, they also will have a, a kind of you know, database of people, they may go to particular places if you want a, an unusual cohort of people but there are lots of different ways so i'm afraid if mrs chorley hasn't been stopped i don't know why uh but and, you know and in terms of the uh when you you know when you have an opinion poll of maybe a thousand twelve hundred people in that sample how do you make sure that that is then representative of the country and not just that group of people that you spoke to so if you have a large enough sample um and you know for the whole population more than a 1,000 would be fine, 2,000 is better. But what you'll then do is when you get the data back, you look at it and you match it to statistics for the known population. And then you may do some weighting. So if you find that you've got too many or too few of a particular group of people, you'll adjust it statistically so that you get, so that you get the right proportion of people. So if in your sample 40% are women, then you'll Put exactly. a bit more weight exactly on the so exactly it becomes 50-50. Yes, exactly that. That all makes sense. Now, I suppose this is, this is maybe the million-dollar question before we go piling into um, all the work you've done over the years, but how much attention do people actually pay to politics? Not very much. And this is always the most sobering thing for all politicians. I have literally done focus groups. And political journalists. And political journalists, of course, exactly. You know, you think people are hanging on your every word and sadly they're not. And, you know, I've literally done focus groups with the politicians sitting, you know, behind the screen watching and people have not recognised him or her, Um, you know, and, and... I've actually done focus groups where people haven't recognised the Prime Minister. And how, so when you've got the politician behind the screen and they don't recognise them, how do they react to that? Well, actually, that's probably easier than hearing people say <laughs> really, really, really mean things about them, which yeah. also happens. Who's, who's reacted most badly? Can you tell, tell us which politician... I do remember Ed Balls, actually, um, sitting the other side of a screen and telling me that he was on a low-carb diet. And what they do in these sort of, they call them viewing facilities, they lay out lots of sort of sandwiches and crisps. And he said, no, 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 I'm not having any of that because I'm on a low-carb diet. And then people started talking and being a little bit rude about him. And I glanced over nervously. One of my colleagues was running the group and he was just shoving sandwiches in his face. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Oh, well, we could all do. We could, yeah. I could, we could all appreciate that. So, right, let's go. Let's go right back to the beginning again. Then, what when you started doing this job it was about back in the nineteen eighties for the Labour Party. Yes. What so the of, first election I worked on was nineteen eighty seven. And so, what sort of state were Labour in then? And um, I, I read uh, previously you talked about how um, when you spoke to people, uh, they were so rude about Neil Kinnock that you sort of stopped passing that on. 
Yeah, I mean, it became really difficult. And um, Charles Clark, who was running Neil Kinnock's office at the time, I think felt that he needed to a certain extent to kind of protect Neil, um, whose confidence was quite low at that point. But we were, I mean, people were very rude about him. They were very rude about Labour. Um, it really felt like Labour was going nowhere. And it became, it was a difficult message to convey. Um, you know, because, my, you know, my job is to be, obviously, to be truthful, but also to be constructive. And that's true with any client that I'm dealing with. You know, there's no point in giving somebody terrible, terrible news. I also need to think strategically about how I can tell them what to do about that. And one of the things that you do, and you, I know you've been on the show lots of times before, and it's, it's when you ask what seem like slightly left-field questions, you know, if this politician was a car, what would they be, or whatever, you know, and actually you get real insight to people. And I was reading, you when you asked back then, if you asked people what they thought of, what words they thought of when you asked about the Labour Party, they talked about holidays in Blackpool, taking the bus, living in a council house, smokes a pipe, all quite old-school views of the Labour Party. So how do you get from that to this? A new dawn has broken, has it not? And it is wonderful. We always said that if we had the courage to change, then we could do it. And we did it. Tony Blair there in 97, he's not a very holiday in Blackpool taking the bus type of guy. No, he's not. And, and you know, in some ways that was why it worked and it marked a, a real sort of sea change. Um, it took a long time. I mean, you know, the 10 years, you know, it, it was really, really a long haul and lots and lots of things had to happen. Um, and... Gosh, I mean, where to start? It, it was it was about the policy offer. It was about the people presenting the policy offer. It was about the values. I mean, by the time we got to 97, um, we'd had the pledge card in that election with those sort of five policies. I spent weeks and weeks testing those policies to make sure we had exactly the right things that, that signposted to people, um, you know, a different approach and a different way of thinking and things that they found really appealing as a kind of hook. But in the end, you know, when... When I look back on it a few weeks after that election and ask myself the question, why did people vote Labour? They weren't voting for a better NHS, although they wanted that. They weren't voting for smaller class sizes, although they wanted that. They were voting for a different way of doing politics. And that was what, at that point, um, they seemed to be getting, or they felt that they were getting to the point where, and this is interesting in two ways, I think, Labour wanted me to go out and do some focus groups with people that hadn't voted Labour even after a landslide victory, at that point, the team in charge were very keen to understand, you know, why some people hadn't come over to them. It was really hard to find people who would admit that they hadn't voted Labour because there was this sort of groundswell of feeling that, you know, the mood of the nation was behind them. It's like people who, you can't find anyone now who backed the Iraq war. Uh, exactly, exactly, <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did. And so at that point, uh, Tony Blair moves into uh, number 10. You're working for Gordon Brown, who's in number 11, and he becomes one of the most popular politicians in the country? I think people often forget this, um, but Gordon Brown was the most popular politician in Britain for 10 years. I mean, you know, he really, and that double act really worked well. You know, he really underpinned the offer because he had a lot of trust. Um, you know, actually, back to your, you know, if, if that politician was a car, Gordon was a Volvo. Why? Because he was solid and reliable. Not too exciting and flash, and but you know he did the job. Yeah, and oh. and actually as a double act they worked really well. I mean Tony was a bit more sort of exciting if you like, and Gordon was, <laughs> but he was solid, reliable. It really mattered. And and that, obviously famously the relationship between Gordon Brown and uh, Tony Blair was not always uh, at, at its best. 
in that situation, are you, particularly when Gordon Brown was trying to become Prime Minister, were you polling things on Tony Blair to try and find weaknesses or, you know, other rivals to become Prime Minister at that time? No, I, I mean, I, I, I never did that. Um, I mean, I think in some ways the... the the clash between the two has been slightly overstated over the years. They actually, I think, mostly, until probably until right at the end, worked pretty well together. And certainly we never did that. I mean, I definitely did work, and I talk about it in, in my first book, Talking to a Brick Wall, I definitely did work looking at how Gordon could make that transition most effectively from being, if you like, the number two in politics to being the number one. Um, but, but no, we, we never looked at, um, you know, at colleagues to sort of pick holes in them. So, of course, you, you touched on it there, but he eventually, after a lot of uh, waiting, he eventually moved from the Treasury to number 10. I will try my utmost. This is my promise to all of the people of Britain. And now let the work of change begin. So that's Gordon Brown, outside number 10. Uh, Long-held ambition fulfilled. And to start with... His popularity just rocketed. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to Chequers and doing a presentation of a, you know, a big update of polling and focus groups to the Cabinet. And I, I, it was almost embarrassing because it was sort of so glowing and so positive. I'd, I, and as I'd been putting the presentation together, I'd been looking for some things that I could say that were not going right because I felt it, it just felt too glossy almost. Um, yeah, it, it was a fantastic start. And it, and it was partly as a result, and this is all sound a bit familiar, with dealing with a succession of crises. There was a terror attack, there was foot and mouth, and he was seen to be, again, like solid, reliable, rising to the occasion. He was absolutely the politician that people wanted at that point. We had the, you know, the, the terrorist attacks, as you say, foot and mouth. He cancelled his holiday. I mean, this was, in a way, this absolutely played to Gordon's strengths. He wasn't that comfortable, I suspect, being on holiday anyway. I think he was, you know, he was wearing, wearing a suit on the beach. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so he did. And, yeah, it was he was, you know, the right guy for those very difficult times. So that lasted for the whole summer in uh, 2007 until this happened. I think that's not likely that we'll have an election because I want to get on with the business of, of governing. Not uh, likely uh, when? Uh, what's the well, period? Not likely this year, not likely whatever dates you were suggesting. Not likely I, next year? I want to get on with the business of governing. <laughs> so that was the famous election that never was. Uh, it was. So much talk of that in the sort of... In fact, this time in 2007, and then he suddenly pulled it. And that became quite a big turning point, yeah, didn't it? It did, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that... I think it was mismanaged from start to finish, really. There were many, many opportunities where, um, where, where Gordon and the team could have rode back and said, we're not doing this. Actually, if they'd done it just a week or two before at Labour Party conference, it, the story would have been over and things would then have been very different. I think the Tory party conference that followed the following week would have not gone so smoothly and brilliantly because they were all pulling together thinking there was going to be an election and everything that happened afterwards, it, it made Gordon look weak. I mean, it was the right thing to do to consider going early. Um, I mean, you know, you talked earlier about failure and how quickly things turn around. Actually, we did a big analysis and found that three months in tended to be as good as it got for any leader. And oh, the best that you could hope to do was to maintain your ratings at that point. That's really interesting. So three months is, yeah. the, sort, is yeah. the best you can yeah. hope for. And if you anyway. think about it with Boris Johnson, that's kind of where we've ended up. There might have been a little bit of an extra few weeks because of COVID and him getting COVID and everything that happened then. But actually... I mean, it's, you know, it's been an extreme version, but an extreme version of a fairly familiar pattern. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So he clung on anyway. It went all the way to 2010. And things just seemed, you know, it was one of those things where sometimes politicians just attract bad luck and things seem to go from bad to worse, famously with this moment. should never have put me with Humphrey Lake, would I? Whose idea was that? I don't know, I didn't see. I didn't see nothing. It's just ridiculous. They will go in. What did she say? Oh, everything. She's just a sort of bigoted woman that said she used to be late. I mean, it's ridiculous. Bigoted woman. At least you don't have your head in your hands, as Gordon Brown famously did when he had that he clip did. played to him during he the 2010 did. election. But part of the reason it, it became such a big thing, I think, was because, and in fact, you, you then wrote a book after it, after the election 20, in 2010, talk, talking to a brick wall, how new Labour stopped listening to the voter and why we need the new politics. That was sort of emblematic of that, wasn't it? It, 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 was. it felt like he was just completely out of touch well, with a long time Labour voter. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think the same had happened with, with Tony before him. And you know, New Labour, when you ask how did we get from 87 to 97, it was very much about listening to voters. I don't mean listening to voters and just serving up exactly what they wanted, but listening to voters and bearing that in mind as, the, you know, the whole package was put together. And I think that once people stopped hearing things they wanted to hear, they stopped listening so hard. And it's interesting, that Mrs Duffy moment really was very prescient when you, you know, you roll forward to, to the Red Wall, um, because... Yeah, some of those, those attitudes, rashes I heard everywhere. Yeah, well, let's skip out. I mean, I, I, I hate, hate to do this too, because obviously he's enjoying a, a, a bit of um, a return to the limelight. So let's skip over the, sort of the Ed Miliband years to some extent. I'll talk to Deborah Matteson, uh, Labour pollster, uh, for, former Labour pollster, and now uh, author of Red War, Why Labour Lost, How the Conservatives Won, and What Will Happen Next. So in a way, it was sort of took a while for, for the losing of those ties with the Labour heartlands to play through. And we saw it first with Scotland. Yep long-held, you know, this long-held sense of being taken for granted and, and all of that. And that Scotland fell and they ended up with one MP. Yep. And then it, it, it was sort of history sort of repeated itself all over again, the north of England. So tell us then what you've done with your book, and The Red Wall, in trying to get to the bottom of why Labour lost those places, which they'd held, uh, in some cases, for 100 years or some cases, forever. Forever, um, in, in so many cases, forever. And I think what Natalie was, was setting out then is, is also true, that it wasn't about one thing. It wasn't a thing that happened overnight. It wasn't a thing that happened, you know, just in that election. This is a, a, a story that had been waiting to happen for a long, long 
time. And what I think had happened was this group of voters had been neglected. It's interesting, reflecting back on my career, um, that, you know, in all those years that I was doing polling for the Labour Party, I never did polling in a red wall seat. Literally, not once. Why? Because Labour took them for granted. Labour just assumed they didn't need to. And, of course, the Tories also didn't do polling there uh, because they thought their Labour seats, we don't, you know, we're never going to win those. So what that meant was that this was a group of people whose views were simply never heard. They were completely neglected. And that had some really practical implications for the people that lived there. But it also meant their voices were never heard. And, you know, that one of the things I've tried to do with the book is to, you know, really kind of bring those voices, vo voters' voices to life and kind of give them a voice. And so what did you find? How did you go about doing that? Where did you go? So I, I chose three constituencies. Um, Darlington, actually because I was born there, no other particularly good reason, but, but it's, it's a great Why example not? of one of those yeah. northeastern seats. I did um, Hindburn, which is um, in Lancashire, and Stoke Central. So, uh, you know, a bit of a mix. And what I did in each of the places was to run focus groups with people who had voted Labour in the past, usually never anything else, and had voted Tory for the first time. And then I also did some, what, what we call in the trade, kind of ethnographic research. I, I spent time in people's houses, chatting to them, you know, seeing them go about their daily business, kind of really getting a, a flavour of their lives. Um, and, you know, you get a lot more out of people, get to know them much better in that, in that kind of setting, to really kind of understand where they were coming from. And what was it that they were telling you? So they were telling, they, they were quite angry, you know, and a bit sad as well, like Natalie. I mean, a lot of them said what, what she said, which is, you know, they'd, they'd voted Labour all their lives. Their parents had voted Labour all their lives. Their grandparents had voted Labour. When they became old enough to vote, their mum or their granny had said, you know, you vote Labour, don't you? Um, these were people who were proud, proud of their local community, but also very sad. And everywhere I went, there was a sort of nostalgia for a glorious past in their local community that had, that had actually sort of evaporated. So in Darlington, it was the railways. In Accrington, Hindburn, it was the Norrie Brick, this fantastic sort of brick factory that they'd had. In Stoke, of course, it was the potteries. All of those, plus the mines, plus everything else, all of that industry had evaporated and the jobs that were there were very poor and people felt their children had no future. And I suppose it's that thing of... Um, uh, it was that decline and the sense that nobody cared, you know, because it, it wasn't... You know, if, you, if you're in a swing seat, if something goes wrong, people turn up with pots of money and promises and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But if, if you're being taken for granted, then nothing happens. It, it was worse than nobody cares, though, actually. It was that they were being judged adversely, and this was particularly a problem for Labour. There was a sense, and this is the kind of two tribes for Labour, where you've got, you know, working-class communities like the Red Wall, and then you've got the urban people who are more likely to have voted Remain, who were younger, who were educated, who were graduates, and the Red Wallers felt that the, the Remainers, you know, the urbanites, looked down on them. And it was exactly that Mrs Duffy-type conversation the, playing out. It was interesting, reading the book, there's a sort of real pivot point, and it, you may have a different pivot, but it felt for me, um, there's the bit uh, immediately after the election, and everyone still quite likes Boris Johnson, you know, give him a good win. Even when coronavirus hits, there's a sense of, nobody's ever had to deal with this before, he's doing his best, we're wishing him well, the rally to the flag and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, the pivot point feels like it was this. No, I don't. I don't regret um, what, what I did. As I, as I said, I think um, you know, reasonable people may well disagree about how I thought about what to do in in in, in the in the in these circumstances. But I think that I think that what I did was actually reasonable in these um, in these circumstances. 
There's obviously Dominic Cummings there explaining mm. his strange little trip to Barnard Castle. And this is one of those things where, you know, the Westminster bubble, the lobby, they move on and we talk about, you know, the internal market bill and all that. This Dominic Cummings thing got cut through like almost nothing else this year. Yes. I, I mean, I, I did, I went back to some of the people I'd interviewed earlier in the year after the Dominic Cummings. I mean, I didn't know it was coming. I'd arranged to do it anyway, but, but, but they were really, really angry. Even one of them, Michelle, who runs the but- butty shop in Accrington, said to me, oh, I'd forgotten about that. And then having reminded her, she became, she was sort of almost frothing at the mouth with anger. And it's interesting because, you know, you can't um, really overplay how important Boris Johnson was personally in their decision. One person said he's desnobified the Tory party. He'd given them the licence to vote Tory for the first time. With his persona, with his patriotism, with his positivity, they really liked him. And they were so disappointed. I have to say, I think they're still, to a degree, willing him to succeed. But the kinds of things people said, there was a a chap called Ian, who's a a, a plumber in Accrington. He said, we voted for bold, but we've ended up with waffle. And Colin, who's a builder in Stoke, said, be strong, man, get a grip, fight back. It was just, you could see him sort of weakening before his eyes. It wasn't the strong leader he'd, he'd, he'd voted for. Well, let's listen to Boris Johnson the morning after the election, where at least at that point he appeared to acknowledge uh, that, that, that he, he was being lent votes. Your hand may have quivered over the ballot paper as before you put your cross in the Conservative box. And you may intend to return to Labour next time round. And if that is the case, I am humbled that you have put your trust in me and that you have put your trust in us. And I and we will never take your support for granted. So I suppose that's the big question then. Given your experience over sort of 30-odd years of the ups and downs of the Labour Party, was the election in December a blip? Or is this a permanent schism between the sort of the younger graduate Metropolitan Labour Party and the old Labour Party, which lost Scotland, lost large parts of the North and the Midlands? Is this a blip? Is there a way back? I think there's a way back, but it's very, very much up to Labour uh, now. And, of course, it's up to the Conservatives as well, because I think, you know, Boris Johnson, that that speech on the steps of Downing Street would have been very powerful uh, for Red Wallers. It would have been absolutely acknowledged what they felt. But now expectations are very high and they're watching very carefully and they're already quite disappointed. So so there's definitely a a tiny bit of a, you know, chink in the armour there. Um, But it's going to be up to Labour how they handle that. Um, And they're going to have to do some very deep soul-searching, I think, to, to sort of get this right. I suppose I do have to ask you, what do people think about Keir Starmer? So, I mean, he's made quite a good start, actually. He's definitely better than what went before. And, you know, just to be really clear, what happened in the Red Wall was not all down to Jeremy Corbyn, but it definitely helped. I mean, you know... They've become multiplied, haven't they? It absolutely... It, sort of, it became decline, sort of turbocharged, Corbyn. yes. Like, suddenly here was this guy who represented, in a way, all of these sort of, you know, snooty London graduates um, and, and whose politics seemed to be so, so different. But Keir Starmer's made a good start. He seems very competent. That's fantastic. They don't feel they know him well enough. And that's what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to set out his stall and show what his values and priorities are and they need to be values and priorities that the people in the Red Wall can tune into and say, yes, I, I, you know, he gets me. And if, if there was a by-election in one of those seats that you went back to right now, uh, would the Tories still win it? 
do you think? I think a by-election would... By-elections are always slightly weird and, yeah. and, and different. I've worked on so many of them over the years and I think that it gives people a chance to sort of... Uh, you know, stage a protest without risking the opposition actually winning winning government. Um, so I would think it, a by-election would be incredibly difficult, actually, for, for the, the Tories. Tories. Yes, yes. So in a way, it would do, Keir Starmer could do one of those to show that he was... Yes, a uh, yes that's, that's quite right, yeah. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.